Good morning. Glad to be here again. I've enjoyed studying to teach you guys. It definitely changes your approach to studying. But one thing I love to do, or just a habit of mine, is if I really get studying something, I really like to dig in. I confess that when I was in graduate school, I had a, I think a 20-something page paper due. Got to class, and they turned their papers in, and I didn't turn my paper in. And the professor said, where's your paper, Mr. Reed? I said, I'm not done. I can't turn it in. I'm not done. He said, well, it's late. I said, that's all right. It's better than not done. I'm not going to turn it in if it's not done. And uh, he scolded me, and then I did turn it in about a week later and got 100 on it. I said, I found more than I planned, and I don't want to stop. I'm sorry, but it's not fair to you or me because I found the key, but maybe I was a little late in finding it. It went well, and I'm not bragging, but then later on, he, one of his doctoral students contacted me and said, Professor asked me to get your bibliography for your paper. <clears throat> Sometimes you just keep going. And the thing is, I, I think John Piper has said this great example. He goes, sometimes you really got to dig deep because the diamonds are down there. That's not always the case. Sometimes they're right there on the surface. But there's always more. And I think that's part of what sanctification is. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You're always finding that you're not at the top of the mountain. That you're still making progress. And sometimes the view just gets better and better. Because you see things you never could have seen before. Who, who's been to Guadalupe Mountains? Raise your hands if you've been to Guadalupe Mountains. I recommend you go. It's our closest mountain range. And it's legit. It is mountains. They're big. You don't have to climb to the top of them, but that's about all you can do there besides drive up to them. There's McKittrick Canyon, beautiful canyon in the fall. But one of the things, you get up to those mountains and they loom over you for miles and miles and miles as you're approaching them from the east or from the south or from the west. They're about... Three hours from here, I guess, about 180 miles. It's in the desert, so make sure you got water and gas on your way there. It's one of those foreboding places that says the next gas is 90 miles away. You might not want to take an electric car out there. Um, it's got solar panels on it, but they would work great most of the time because it's very hot. But you get to those mountains, and they're just looming, and they're dark. But as you get closer, you start to notice the fissures and the cracks. And then when you get really close, you start to notice there's something on top of them. They're pine trees. But they're not on the sides of them. The sides of them are rock. And there's there's trees, but there are no pine trees. But at the very top, when you get close enough, you see these little points. And then when you get, if you hike to the top of them, and you go right over the edge, it's a beautiful forest. It doesn't live on the side of the mountain. It just lives on the top, like a bowl up there. It's kind of how scripture is. There are things we don't see till we've looked longer, till we've looked deeper. And I think Jesus is getting at that in all of his teaching, but particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's he's telling us about the law, and he's saying, you've only seen the outside. You haven't seen the depths. And so as we've we've looked at the ten, not ten commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to read through it again. And I want to finish with the next three Beatitudes after Verse 6 is which we focused on last week. I I asked David to leave this on here. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. I hope, I think one of the hard things about the Sermon on the Mount, most would agree, is who does it apply to? Is what is it calling us to? And what is it telling us that we are? And it's doing both of those things. It's calling us to something and it is telling us what we are. If it does not describe us, then we need to, Check our faith or the absence of it. 
But it's doing both things. But as we have these directives from these tests that the Lord give us in the Sermon on the Mount, remember this. This is two things that are going on in the Christian life. And one is completed in Christ. And that by one offering, what is that offering? Christ. He hath perfected. It is done. We are perfected. Our justification is complete. Yet in the same verse, them that are sanctified. We are being sanctified in perfection. We are completely sanctified. And it is as if we are completely sanctified, just as we're justified, because it is promised to be done. And it has been completed in Christ, but it is being worked out in us. I want to read a couple of verses on that note. Not verses, quotes. You don't want to make the Sermon on the Mount be a call to works, though it is calling us to works. It is calling us to good works. But it is not a calling to be saved by works, yet when we read some of these things, we, we begin to think, well, Jesus set the bar really high. Uh, R.C. Sproul said this on commentary on the Beatitudes. Because even though we are justified by faith, not by our works, we are justified unto works. We have been elected by God and received his grace unto righteousness. Even though our righteousness will never justify us, the fruit of our justification is growth in real righteousness. Martin Luther said, we are dead in our sins, but God raised us from the dead, and he declared us well while we were still in sin. That is what justification by faith means. Not only did he give us that declaration, but he gave us the medicine by which we actually do become conformed to the image of Christ. And every Christian is called to grow up into maturity and righteousness. And he says, one thing that we're resistant to is we tend to think of righteousness as self-righteousness. We pick that up in scripture, and we pick it up in experience, is that we tend to hear the word righteousness, we tend to think of a focus on righteousness, and we tend to think of self-righteousness, like the Pharisees, and not real righteousness. But real righteousness is very simple. Do what is right. And the Lord tells us what is right, and he says he will help us do it. And it should be our primary concern as believers. There's so many other things we don't have to be concerned about now because our, our salvation is full and complete. But we have a concern to live righteously, to live for holiness. And God promised us in verse 6 that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we won't be sent away empty. We'll be filled. We, there is already a, a sense of being full yet needing to be filled. Let's read through these Beatitudes one more time together. And then we'll focus on the second half. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I'm going to stop there. There's a little bit more than that, but we're going to focus on those last three. If we look at the Beatitudes, they all are to be part of the Christian life at all times. We can't pick and choose which one. We're like, well, I got the meek down, but not so much that. They're all at the same time, but there is an order, and there is a one seems to beget the other. One does not go away. You don't move through them. You you move in them. So when we talk about being blessed in the poor in spirit, 
Blessed those who mourn, blessed are those who meek, who are meek. This is an emptying out of our value, our own worth, our own um, pride. To be able to say that I am a sinner in need of grace means that I don't have what I need to be saved, to be poor in spirit, to, to mourn for the sins that I've committed and the wanting to commit them, to mourn that me and before I was saved, and even now with this still this dead flesh and with this world, to mourn sin and its effects and its, its poison, to mourn that and to be meek, to recognize that in our emptiness, in our sinfulness, dropping pride so that when we are wronged, we are able to say, well, there was nothing there that I didn't deserve. I will not repay evil for evil. But then we get to this, we talked about this one last week. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the turning point in these. So we have these first three that are emptying. And in this fourth one, we have a filling. Uh, most uh, Many translations say they will be filled. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. With what? Righteousness. One thing about these, all of these Beatitudes is, I think this is really interesting, it's hard, maybe it's hard conceptually, maybe it's not for you, is that the thing that it says you're to be blessed in having is a gift of God. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is a gift of God. To be poor in spirit is a gift of God. God gives the thing that he's then going to bless. Isn't that great? That all of these verses are saying, these are who the happy people are. These are who the blessed people are. If you don't have these things, you're neither happy nor blessed. But I'm going to give you these things. Because God is merciful. And though we don't deserve them, he gives them to us. So when we mourn for our sin, we're only able to do that because God helps us to do that. And by help, I don't mean like we're trying and we're so, so doing it. No, I mean it's impossible. For us to properly mourn for our sin in our relationship to God. You see other religions, you see other beliefs where people mourn for their sins. Where people take a vow of poverty. People try to be righteous. But they don't do it in relation to the holy God. And that's a big difference. Because all of those things outside of faith in God themselves are sin. Scripture tells us. So we hunger and thirst for righteousness. There is this filling of righteousness, we're given the hunger and thirst, and then we're filled with the righteousness. You don't come to the Lord and say, save me, unless you hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. And when you do, you get it. He put the thirst there, and he rewards the thirst. And then throughout life, he continues to fill that hunger and that thirst. It's a both a complete and an ongoing. And out of that filling come the next three. Which is, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are the peacemakers. So God gives us mercy, and he gives us the ability to be merciful, yet he calls us to be merciful, knowing that we are quite capable of not being merciful. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. We'll talk about what that means, and blessed are the peacemakers. So to be merciful, out of this flowing of righteousness, out of this filling up, overflows aspects of what God is like. God is merciful. God is a peacemaker. Now, 
you might argue, someone might argue and say, well, how can God be a peacemaker? He's sent his people to war. He's slaughtered. He's promised that all of the sinful will be cast into hell forever. How is that peacemaker? Well, God is just. And justice and peace work together. They're not in conflict. We're going to go into all the details of that, but the Lord is a peacemaker. And what has he done to make peace? He's made peace with us through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the spirit in us. He sought us in his mercy to make peace with us, who at the time he did it were enemies. Okay, let's, let's start focusing on these. To obtain, to be merciful. So where does mercy come from? I'm going to, I didn't get all these verses to David, so I'm going to give him some time to catch up. <clears throat> I think he's had them, had them up there as we're going. Mercy, <clears throat> purity, and peacemaking. This is seven, eight, and nine. They all come from God and they all come out of the righteous heart that abounds in being filled. Mercy comes from mercy. Our mercy comes from God's mercy to us. If you are unmerciful, then what you represent is an unmerciful God. And none of us want an unmerciful God. We, we love and we are all, our hope is in that God has been merciful to us in Christ. And from that, we're, we're, we show mercy. So here's the second part of this verse. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Can you turn that down just a tad, David? It's, maybe it's just me, but it seems like it's echoing. There you go. Our mercy comes because of God's mercy to us, and we're to be merciful. We don't want to, this is what I was saying at the beginning when we quoted the Hebrews. We don't want to make this, look at this and say, well, to receive mercy, as it says, if you're merciful, you will receive mercy, then I should be merciful. I need mercy, so I better be merciful. That is reversing the way this works and the way Jesus presented it to us. Mercy comes from those who have been shown mercy and from God's mercy to us. How do we become a merciful person? Well, we go back. Let's step back to the beginning. We become a poverty of spirit, poor in spirit. We empty our pride. We become, mourn our own sin and the things that cause us to sin, the thoughts that give way to sinful actions and sinful thoughts. And we are meek in our approach to others and their sin. And out of that, and out of the righteousness that we're being filled with, comes the ability to be merciful. God wants... Let's, uh, Dave, would you go to Matthew 9? Verse 10. We'll start in verse 10 through 13. God wants us to be merciful. He, he calls us to it in many places throughout the Bible, but Jesus, in Matthew, gives us several examples of his desire. Verse 10, Matthew 9. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Just like he's done in the Beatitudes, Jesus comes and he tells the Pharisees, 
Go look this up. Go figure this out, Pharisees. Go look in your scripture. This is from Hosea. And he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So the Pharisees, what are they going about doing? Making sure they're outwardly, as most of us would say, well, how else are you going to do it? If you're not doing it outwardly, you're not doing it inwardly. Following the law, they're also judges of the people. If you break the law, they're going to come down on you. Not just themselves, and definitely not judging their own hearts. Only God can see our hearts, but they are not showing mercy. And he says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the Lord is showing mercy to these disciples, to these tax collectors, to these sinners. He says, you need to go learn what this is, what this is about, to be a merciful person. Go to Matthew 23. And verse 23, starting there. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier manners of the law. And then he tells us what the weightier manners of the law are. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The Pharisees once again come under the Lord's direction in that you are focusing on things that may be right that you should do under the law, but you're preoccupied with them. And in, and in the big picture, they are a trifle because what God sees is the heart and the weightier manners of the law. He says right here, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This is um, the opposite of mercy what these guys are doing. Do we find ourselves in the place of the Pharisees? The opposite of mercy for them is straining out the gnats, finding the little things and saying, ah, this little thing, this little thing, this little thing, this little thing. Let me hold this against my brother. Let me hold this against somebody else. Let me hold this against somebody I don't even know that I've just met, but I'm somehow offended at them because they didn't say the right thing, wear the right thing, give me the right look, serve me fast enough. Maybe they cut me off. Those are not the weightier manners of the law. We, as Christians, should be concerned with justice, with faithfulness, with mercy. So we have this impulse to judge, like the Pharisees. Christ says, where's your mercy? You have been shown mercy. And if we think about, if we really think about ourselves, if we know ourselves, many people have said it many different ways, if anybody could see what's really inside little parts, the little thing, the, the idea, the memory. Oh, we would be so ashamed. The Lord sees, and yet he has been merciful. He even knows the doubts we have now, and his mercy it doesn't fail. So we have to make war against these things that go against being merciful. Being merciful is weighty. It is the weighty matter of the law. But sit there with justice and mercy and faithfulness. Look to Luke 10, another example of mercy. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. And I want to introduce four dimensions of mercy that we see in Luke 10, that we see in this story that Jesus gave of this person who shows mercy. And can we do the same? Jesus made this story up as far as we know. Maybe he saw it in his all-knowing, all-seeing capacity as God. But he made this story up as most parables 
to illustrate the truth. And so can you put yourself, not necessarily as the place of the Good Samaritan, because we may, but yes, could I be the Good Samaritan? But do you think, well, I live a whole different world than they did now. It's hard for me to believe, but we have Good Samaritan situations in our lives every day. We don't even have to go out on the road. We have it at home with our spouse, our kids, with people that aren't there. The opportunities come up to recognize these things. One, I want to say these things and we'll walk through them in the story. Mercy sees distress. Mercy responds internally with a heart of compassion. So inside, the heart, the essence of who you are. Not just your mind, not just the scent to saying, well, this is a bad thing, need to take care of it. That's what the EMS do. And though it's good that we have them and that's a blessing, that's not showing mercy unless there's also a heart of compassion. Not judging that. Just want you to know the difference. Like we said, these these beatitudes, none of these come naturally. We may all have, you may think, well, I know somebody's very merciful. They may have in their nature, as we all have different aspects to our personalities, a mercy. But if it's not the mercy that God imparts through his spirit, that's not the mercy that's being called out here. They may look similar. God can sanctify the one if it already exists. If it's not coming from the spirit, it's an example, but it is not holy. Is not blessed. It responds internally. It responds externally. This is the third aspect of it. With a practical effort to relieve the distress identified. And then for it acts when the person in distress is an enemy. I can show in a, in a sense merciful to those I love. But that's not really mercy. That's love. That's compassion for the ones I love. Where mercy really stands out is those that I don't. Let's read the story of Good Samaritan. Starting in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So here, the lawyer stands up and says something that is a glorious truth, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with our soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And I would say this lawyer made a mistake, but he didn't. This is, this is providential, and we get this great teaching from it. But he said, well, just who is my neighbor? Now the Lord says, like he does in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, let's expand on this. You've, you've thought you've got this figured out. Jesus replied, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite. And when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He saw him, he saw, he didn't just see him, he saw the condition he was in, and he had compassion internal on him. Even though he was a Samaritan, he had compassion on this Jew. They were enemies. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, 
I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The one who showed him mercy. When, when the lawyer quotes the law and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. How do we go about having neighbor love? We have to be merciful. No mercy, no neighbors. No one that we can show love to. He says, go and do likewise. You do find a conflict at times. You say, well, what about justice and mercy? What about justice? What about when crime is being committed? How do I show mercy to the criminal? How do I show mercy to those who are defaming the name of God? How do I show mercy to those who are in flagrant sin or a society, culture, that cause sin, righteousness, and righteousness sin? We must never call such things that way. We should never call the sinful things good and good things bad. We are to show justice when called, but we must show justice and mercy. We have to go back and say, okay, well, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, not blessed are those who knew exactly what kind and how and when to show mercy. He said, blessed are the merciful. And to do that, think of, the, think of any situation and judge it by this. Am I being poor in spirit? Am I sorrowful about my own sin? Am I meek? Am I not defensive? Am I not exalting myself in this situation? Am I hungering and thirsting that the right be done? And am I perceptive of their distress, of their misery, even that of the sinner? Do I feel pity for their pain? And do I make every effort to see the greatest good done? The greatest good doesn't mean we dismiss sin or we dismiss justice. Nope, that's not the definition of good. Our sin was not dismissed, right? Penalty was paid. The cross exists because our sin. Jesus died on the cross for our sin, not for his own. had none. He died for the sin of all of us. It was not wiped away. It was wiped away in regard to we did not have to pay the price. But Christ paid it. It's not dismissed. The heart of mercy will show even when justice is being shown. We have to find mercy. It's not that we do mercy to gain mercy, though the Lord says, if you want to reverse this, if you're not merciful, merciful, mercy will not be shown to you. And so if we are saved, we must exhibit mercy. And I don't say that to say we must do it. If you're saved, you better do it. I'm saying if you're saved, you do it. Saved people show mercy. So if I'm unable to show mercy, I must not be saved. Because the Spirit is in me. The Spirit of God who has shown mercy on me lives out in my life showing mercy in others. We are sinful and we fail and we fail in this miserably. But if we have no heart for it, if you look at yourself and say, well, that's, I see that beatitude and think, well, it can't mean that. I encourage you to dig. As Jesus said, figure out what this means. Show mercy. If you don't show mercy... Mercy will not be shown to you. And I would say that if you're unable to show mercy, then the, mercy, the greatest mercy that won't be shown to you is the mercy of salvation. It never has been. Okay, let's move on to the next beatitude there. So we go back to Matthew 5. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Of all the beatitudes, of all the statements in the Bible, this is one of the most powerful statements. Because in the garden, what happened with Adam and Eve? They're 
communing with God. And then sin comes in. And since that time, no one has seen God. And I don't think we want to say, okay, well, you can't see God because, let's go with the technicality, he's invisible. There's something I think you get from the totality of Scripture is that, yes, God is quite different from us, but the reason we can't see God is not because our eyes can't see him on a technicality. It's not an optical problem that we don't see God. It's a sin problem. It's an internal problem. By seeing God, am I saying, well, you see a man? Well, you can see Christ. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father, Jesus says. You go to Moses, and he says, I'm going to show you my backside. I don't understand what all this means. I'll be honest, I don't think any of us exactly know what it means to see God. Except to see God means you are in his presence, face to face, and you live. Because in our sinfulness, that can't happen. So we are admitted to his presence when we see God. We are awestruck by his glory because we truly see it. To read scripture and to be, if you, if you put yourself in the place of the Old Testament people and the New Testament people that are experiencing these, they're in the presence of God, they're in the presence of Christ. They don't see the glory. If you read scripture and you don't see the glory, then you're not seeing God. Because God is, is glorious. And we read about him. The spirit inside of us should help us see the glory of the Lord. So to see God is to be admitted to his presence. Like, I'm going to go see the doctor. Yes, I may see the doctor, probably. But what I really mean is I'm going to be with the doctor because doctor stuff needs to happen. I'm going to see God. I'm going to be with God in the presence of God. Now, God is all present, but face to face. There's a difference. And I'm, being, I'm awestruck by his glory because I see it. And... I'm comforted by his grace to see God. If we look in the Psalms, I won't, we won't go to them, but throughout the Psalms, there are many references and other places in Scripture it says, turn not your face from me. What does it mean if I, maybe this happens at home, or maybe you can think of a melodramatic movie. I can't even look at you right now. Turn not your face from me. David recognizes, as many to the saints and as should we, that if we are not, if God will not look at us, we're in a sore situation. There could be nothing worse. David says, hide not your face from me. It's the same as saying, be gracious to me. Look upon me with your grace and mercy. It's a sweet experience. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, that the reward... For a pure heart is that we will see God. We'll be in his presence. We'll be awestruck. We'll directly experience his glory. Every aspect that we experience of his glory now, there's that spiritual longing, I think. There's scripture. There's creation, where we sometimes see things that represent, that give us a taste of the glory and the power and the awesomeness of the Lord. But none of them are direct. We will, one day, we're promised to have that direct Face-to-face seeing of God. Partly now, but fully in the age to come. But only one thing, for pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? You can talk about purity in a couple different ways. One is, so I was killing Maya the other day, my now 17-year-old, because on a whim, I pulled up Apple Music and was listening to Ronnie Millsap. I love Ronnie Millsap. I used to listen to him as a kid and just think, I could just sing, I can. 
What's Ronnie Millsap's big early song? Pure love, right? Milk and honey and Captain Crunch. You in the morning. 99 and 44 one hundredths percent pure love. So is that pure love? He left, he left 56 one hundredths out. What would that be? Maybe that's as good as it gets for us. To be pure means to be unadulterated. If I say this is pure peanut butter, okay, it's 99% pure peanut butter. You're very concerned about 1% because it's not pure peanut butter. That 1%, if it's oil or water or whatever, you'd be like, okay, well, that's all right. But if it's arsenic, you're not going to eat it. It's been ruined. Pure heart means a pure heart that has one will. It's not two-faced. It's not two-sided. Go to two, uh, James James 4, we'll start in 4, verse 4. James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What does it say there? Go back to uh, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. We have to be pure. But who does the purifying? It's God. Uh, go to Matthew again. Back to Matthew 22. What does it say? Verse 37. Well, verse 36, let's go back there. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. All. 100%. Not 99 and 44 one-hundredths. All of it. It can't be divided. It's a purity of heart. And how do we seek that? Well, we just read it in James. Draw near to him. So this is our dilemma. If we are impure in heart, if we look at that beatitude, we will not see God. We'll not be admitted into his presence. We'll not be awed by the glory of his holiness. We'll not be comforted by his grace. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hold on to that verse because we're going to come back to it in a second. Without the holiness that no one will see the Lord. That holiness, that purity. And in Matthew 19, I won't make you turn there. So how do you do this? How, how can I be any different than the psalmist who said, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from sin. The high answer is, no one. A wretched man that I am. Who then can be saved? The disciples asked Jesus, and Jesus answers back, With men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
In other words, God creates purity for us and in us so that we can pursue purity. More pure, more grace, by his grace, grace upon grace. Create in me a clean heart, O God, says the psalmist. That's the desire of one who desires to be pure. Christ gave himself for us to purify for himself a people. This is in Titus 2. He's here to purify our hearts. And then the last one, and this will be a little fast. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In all of these, it's come back and forth to the same thing. Can we be saved and not be changed? No, we can't. Can we inherit eternal life and have all the attitudes, all the behaviors, all the thoughts and actions of unbelievers? No, the scripture is clear about that. Yet the conflict for us often is we also realize that nothing we do earns our salvation. So we get caught in this battle within ourselves that says, well, if nothing I did can earn my salvation, then nothing I do matters. Oh, it matters. And the saved people pursue righteousness. They also pursue peace. God is a peacemaker. We deserve judgment, but we obtained mercy. And we are called sons of God as believers. That's a great place to be in the economy of the universe, to be sons of God. True children resemble their father. So if God is a peacemaker, we should be peacemakers. If we want to know how, well, we have faith in God. We trust in in Jesus and believe in his name. We become children of God. And then Jesus makes peace. The God of peace, I'm going to skip a bunch of these verses that, believe me, God is often referred to as the God of peace. And he is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, it says in Second Corinthians. He made peace by the blood of the cross in Colossians. God is working peace in our lives. We are to work peace in the world with others, in our homes, in our church, in our community, with strangers, with those we know. We can't hold a grudge. If we are, we're not peacemakers. If we are, we're not meek. If we hold a grudge, we're not poor in spirit. And I can think of a grudge that I hold. That's me that deserves that, not the person. Though I've thought differently many times. But I can't hold a grudge. I'm a new creation. A new creation that doesn't hold grudges when perfected and is working on it. It's all of grace. So as, as we accept that we have the grace, we have to push to be peacemakers. How do we do this? Well, Matthew 5, verse 43. We just jump a little bit ahead from Jesus' introductory remarks to his Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard it that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 43. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, How do we show peace? We pray for those who persecute us, for our enemies. We don't nurse grudges. We build bridges. We do like the Samaritan. We see 
the need and we have compassion. Is this always possible? Sometimes it's difficult. Paul says in Romans 12, If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. That is our goal. If possible, as long as it depends on us, we live peaceably. Don't let it be our fault. As you see now this completion of these th- these next three, to be pure in heart, to be a peacemaker, to be merciful. They're all connected. The peacemaker is connected to the one who is meek. I don't have to bring judgment. I don't have to get even. The pure in heart is connected to the one who has mourned for their sins. They recognize it and they want nothing of it. And those who are merciful are those who have seen that God has shown mercy on them with nothing we deserve. Being poor in spirit, we recognize that and it lives out on us. Jesus cares about how we live. And he cares about us having victory over sin in this life. We often, I think everybody would agree in here, there's no government program. There's no philosophy of life that's going to end the injustices in the world. We talk about social justice. We talk about whatever. You know what the root of all of it is? Is sin. And some of that sin is Christian sin. Sin that we've been given victory over and we've been given the tools to defeat now what has already been defeated eternally. So I pray you would uh, let the Lord guide us. Continue to read that Sermon on the Mount again with all that in mind. And uh, see you again in two weeks. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for making peace through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as you work in our lives to make a holy people, that we would rejoice and we would mourn and we would put all of our hope in you, not passively but actively seeking your power and your guidance in your word and through your spirit and through the church and through fellow believers, that we would grow to be more like you and it would be so obvious that we're different from the world and that we mourn for it and that we have a gospel because it's true that can change each person in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.